0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight.
1: Hey, hey, from Nashville.
0: AJ O'Neill.
2: Yo, 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 coming at you live from now warm again, Bravo.
0: I know, so confusing. Like, I walked outside in a jacket and I was like, I almost don't need this. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I I can't help but I have to say this. My book's out. Yeah.
3: Okay. (laughs) We have a special guest this week, and that's Daniel Caldas. All right, Caldas, you got it almost there. Here, Daniel talking from Singapore. Nice.
0: Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Do you want to just introduce yourself real quick, let people know who you are and what
3: you're famous for and all that stuff? Sure. So I'm Daniel. I'm a Portuguese born in Andorra, which is a small country between Spain and France. I started off my career in Portugal working for a varying company, working mainly on front-end, a bit of Node.js as well. And then I evolved from there. I moved on to Germany to work for Trivago. Also, as a JavaScript engineer, started getting a bit more into unit testing and uh, UI libraries, more complex stuff. Most recently, I moved to Singapore, where I work as a software engineer for Zendesk. Oh, cool. Are they based out there? I don't pay much attention to that kind of thing. Uh, Not really. They are based in San Francisco, but they have some Asian headquarters here in Singapore. Oh, cool. So, uh, yeah, we brought you
0: on to talk a bit about unit testing and uh, Jest. It looks like most of the focus that uh, I'm seeing here is front-end. What is your experience with testing JavaScript?
3: Yeah, so it's mostly around front-end testing. So I started off not with Jest actually. I started with Karma and Jasmine in Angular 1.6. 1, 1, 1. dot six. So it's like mm-hmm. pretty these days pretty old stuff, right? I started off like testing like small components and this business logic that you have in separate, like separate files across large projects. Then eventually things move on and like, you find better tools and you find, hopefully, things like Jest that comes with everything in one package. Like, I don't know, you don't need to set up coverage, you don't need to uh, worry about like, searching for like assertions on a, a library called Mocha or going to check another assertions on another li- library called Sinon. So everyone's like, centralized in one place. You have one single reference page for documentation and, and that's pretty much where I where I love about chest. And I started with chest, about two years ago, when I started simultaneously learning a bit about React because I, I wanted to move out from Angular and like my job didn't was not allowing me to go like much on the exploring new UI and, and JavaScript frameworks. And that was this all new cool stuff coming out and I just wanted to try it out. And I actually started with Jest in one of my open source projects called React D3 Graph, which is basically a wrapper component for D3 in React. Mm -hmm. I started off with very simple stuff, I would say, mostly to test simple logic around simple and mostly pure JavaScript functions. One thing that popped up right away was uh, snapshot testing. And this was, for me, like a a super game changer because I came from a world where I was, at least as as I was taught to program or or to write tests, where you have these huge assertions which super huge, large objects that you say like, this needs to be equal to these or assert equals that. And then you need to just copy around, either create your own mock functions to create large, objects or yeah, or just having the object in line in the, in the assertion. And then for me, this snapshot testing was like real game changer. And uh, with that, you start, you know, knowing around, getting a bit familiar. And then I also, I think I stick with Jest throughout my two so side projects. And then also when I moved to Germany to at Trivago, uh, luckily, they also use uh, Jest for, for unit testing. There, I started doing some more complex stuff on, let's say, testing not only these pure functions and business logics that you have around, but also going into UI components and having JS DOM integrations where you basically render components and then you do assertions on things that happen that you could almost say that they are end-to-end, but they are scope-to components. Most recently, I think, like, Around three, three, four months, I was writing this babel plugin. This is where I kind of found out a little bit a different side of Jest and also like inspired me to write this latest article of mine on fixture based unit testing, where basically you remove all the dry setup that you have, all the boilerplate-ish uh, code, uh, that, you, that you have to like, write a unit test. And instead of repeating yourself everywhere, in this small library that I wrote, I used a pattern like, that you can see probably in, in repos and famous projects like Babel or Webpack, where you have fixtures and basically just define your inputs and your outputs and the runtime and a few scripts that you write. Just take this and assert, do the assertions for you and i wrote this i remember like this super small js file just takes javascript input files and matches against an expectation of the of the plugin that i wrote and i just realized like well we just like made it so simple so simple to write and then even more surprisingly like a few months later when i found out about this native jest iterator kind of uh, feature which is uh, it.each or test.each, basically you can specify table-like kind of structure where you define the inputs for your test case and then you define a common test body to perform the assertions on those inputs. They are table-based and that kind of throws away a bit the work that I did around the script to like read all the inputs and match them again against, against the, the expected outputs of my compiler. So, I think that just for me today is like definitely the, the muscle standard for like unit testing at JavaScript, not only for front end, I would say, but even if you do like stuff in the back end, like when you're in testing some, some Q functions, some helper modules that you might have, it might be the simplest thing that you have to like just set up and make it work with everything. Uh, everything out of the box, uh, coverage reports, and all that stuff included. Nice.
0: There's a lot here to unpack, and you've talked quite a bit about what you like about Jest. So I don't know that we'll dive into that necessarily as much. But you you mentioned some of the Jest, I guess, add-ons or libraries that you've written. What kinds of things have you felt like you needed to add to Jest to make it a little bit easier to use? Like to be honest, I don't.
3: I think that even when you go for, I don't know, debugging, if you use VS Code, even there, just got your back. Like, I don't really had to tweak much around Jess to, to make it work. Uh, so, no add ons uh, specifically.
0: Oh, I thought, I thought you said that you'd made like an add on to do snapshots and things like that.
3: Yeah, it's, it's more like um, an, an ex- not an extension, it's just a small. Small script like, that takes chest as base and reads a bunch of inputs for compiler- like library. It's just just a Babel plugin. It just uses chest snapshots to remove all the boiler, boilerplate that you need to do, like uh, defining your test cases, like when you write like "describe, this is my test case, it test case one, and then you start writing your test case and you do an assertion at the end. Just basically getting rid of all their boilerplate, and your test case is just like a JSON uh, like structure that, you, that your script will consume. But that mm-hmm. was just more of, um, I would say, not, not over engineered, but way to get rid of this uh, boilerplate ish around Jess because I was just repeating myself time after time, and I was just wondering if I could like, do better. But under the hood, like just 100% without like any add-ons. So yeah, and snapshotting just makes it easier because you don't need to actually do the assertions yourself. You just run the snapshots, snapshots and you make sure that you put them under version control and then everything, everything runs smoothly. hopefully.
2: So tell me again, what is the snapshot itself? So
3: the snapshot itself is literally the output of these compilers. So think of Babel and think of a Babel plugin that imagine that it takes out console logs. So you have code as input, you have code as output, and your snapshot is just the output of code by your compiler or by your Babel plugin. And uh, this small script that I wrote just basically reads all these inputs in sequence and just performs like literally a match snapshot, so that you don't need to, like, describe the test cases and invoke the compiler, the 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 babel plugin at each test case, so you don't repeat yourself. So basically, the snapshots just literally code that the the plugin outputs. Gotcha. One
0: other thing I'm seeing in here is fixtures. I remember in the past using fixtures, and then people tended to want to use factories instead. So I'm curious, you know, as to what your experience has been with fixtures and why you prefer those over, you know, some kind of factory pattern.
3: Yeah. So the fixture came along exactly at this point in time when I was writing the the Babel uh, plugin. Given the so the scenario and like a bit of research that I did around how compilers are testing these days, they basically have no boilerplate to the test whatsoever. So basically. In Babel, if you look at a plugin, you have a folder for the tests and you have the inputs and your test case basically has a little bit of code that goes through all the inputs and just matches them against the, the outputs of code of the, of the compiler. So that against factories, it's, I guess, a bit more strict because like if you run your test cases, all of the test cases the same way you cannot tweak much, right? So if you have a factory, maybe you can have something that is more configurable or you can tweak along the way. Well, if you have like fixtures, well, for me, it was more of a one-to-one mapping than to have like any kind of personalization around the the test setup. Yeah, I'm curious mostly because
0: um, those kinds of decisions tend to, at least in my experience, uh, shape a little bit the way that you put your tests together because you either call in the fixture or you call upon the factory to give you an object that's going to act the way you want. I'm wondering, how do, you, how do you set your tests up so that they're easy to follow what's going on? Because I've seen, I've seen tests that get really, really hairy and I've seen actually collections of tests where it's hard to figure out where the different things are being tested. And so yeah. I'm, I'm curious how you put that together and how that ties into your decision to use
3: fixtures. Mm, I see. So I wouldn't say that is a good practice, but it's something that I found out along the way that would help me a lot to structure my fixtures and like making other people that are contributing to the project to understand like what's going on and what's what has been tested and what hasn't been tested. It's uh, for you to organize the way you describe fixtures. When I say organized ways, like pure like pure linguistics, let's say you have a library that, I don't know, gets users from a database, and you want to test users that are male or users that are female, you would have like a prefix on your fixture saying that, okay, this is like the branch of my test cases. There are testing users, Doing tests against users that are male, and the other is a branch that is testing features that for against users that are female. I mean, this might not be the perfect, the most perfect example, but the idea is that you try to structure your scenarios in the the feature description. So just try to follow some internal convention, or try to set up some kind of rules with your team in order to. Like make clear and make easier uh, later on to find like, and to reference parts of, of our functionalities uh, of the code base that you say, okay, I want to check for, for this functionality. Uh, this is the, the thing that I need to like, grab on the, on the repo to, to find whether it has been tested or not. AJ, Amy, anything that you want to add or
0: ask before I keep asking all of my testing questions?
1: I am unfortunately uh, not one hundred percent here. Entering a lot of work conversations in Slack right now. Hopefully they'll be wrapped up soon, though.
0: I wish you weren't so important. <laughs> so you you get your tests arranged. You start using fixtures. How do you break up your tests? For example, do you have like one file per class or prototype, or one file per feature, or yeah, For unit usually, tests, how, how do you do that?
3: Yeah, usually, for instance, for this fixtures-based uh, setup that in, we were mentioning, it would be like one file per input on your whatever compiler or whatever thing you are testing. If you'd rather have like testing a real application with, with a more traditional kind of setup, then you would have like one file per, I would say, component, and then I will try to break it down in ways that you have then uh, isolate the test for your different helper modules and like try to make as much as possible to isolate whatever helper functions or whatever modules that perform like heavy work and like very decoupled from your from your UI so that the UI gets easier to test. And then the the way that I usually lay, lay down tests is like trying to make them descriptive, like building up a scenario and then trying to take as much as possible from that scenario. And like when I see scenario, it's for instance in Jest when you have a describe block, like try to set up as much as possible so that you don't need to repeat yourself along the test cases. And then within the different test cases, like also try to be specific in whatever feature or functionality you're trying to test then i think also another thing that is important is like the way you express yourself writing writing the test descriptions is pretty crucial i would say like initially i i think i would not know how exactly to like to express myself when i was describing my tests and um, i think i just start following more senior people in the company you're like trying to see around all the others who, and it, it always falls down like in this pattern where you have like, you describe when something happens and then as more specific you go, or as more close to the test case uh, you get, you start performing specific assertions, stuff like something should happen at this step. So basically you start very high level, and very like describing the surroundings of the desk itself, and then when you get deep, you get very you try to get very specific around like the thing that you're really asserting on. So, are there
0: any gotchas to jest? I mean, you said it's pretty easy to set up and you know get going with, but I mean, you know,
3: no tool is perfect. <laughs> no tool is perfect for sure, but I think one of the, the gotchas is that. Definitely, for me, it was um, at some point try to understand like like if you jump into a code base, like especially if it's like an old codebase and you see that it's using Jest. And Jest is been around I don't know for many years now, but it's been around for a few years and things change and breaking changes happen. So just try to check exactly what version uh, your code base is using because sometimes. Like especially when I started off with Jest, and I had like my personal projects and I had like projects at work, I would like try to use features that would not be available at that version. And as things move pretty fast, like you just try to like bookmark whatever whatever version you are using and like try to refer to the, the correct documentation because. It might be that you're just simply referring to something that does not exist in that version. I remember one of the things that like quite annoyed me was like I think when Jess migrated to like major version 24, like they dropped the regenerator runtime. So I remember I had like a bunch of projects I start seeing around like regenerator runtime not found, it's just exploding everywhere. And then it's like a bit annoying because you need to provide it yourself, either like configuring Babel properly and, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, de- definitely try to like place yourself whenever like you need to uh, refer to some documentation and pay attention to versioning. The other thing is that you also will probably find a lot and like, a bunch of resources around Jest online, which happens pretty much today with, with anything, right? I mean, we, we see what happens with React. I mean, you just search for I don't know how to use hooks, and you get like thrown uh, one million Google results for how to use hooks. Uh, the way I try to go about is like just try to stick as much as possible like close to official documentation or people that are somehow like related with the, the project or library used to to you using in this case Chest, or at the same time try to read recent stuff. Because probably, if you're reading like an article from like one year or like a few few months ago, like it, it will just not work the, the way that the author is describing, and it it might be just frustrating for you to try to follow something and that just not understanding it. Does that stuff change very often? I would say not that often, but it 's more of you working on projects that are using like different versions and um, these things are documented where you really don't realize it.
1: Like you kind of mentioned a little bit of just kind of like the architecture of using Jest and um, where you kind of place the files and some stuff like that, which brought to my mind some of the like conventions that come along with using Jest, which I thought was helpful as far as like where you place your mocks and tests and directory structures. And basically, like if you follow their conventions, then running things automatically just kind of uh, you fall into the pit of success and it just works. Uh, Daniel, do you, you want to like talk about that for a little bit?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely. That basically aligns with the fact that Jess has uh, like, pretty much everything out of the box and I think the convention and like the structure that Jess gives you for you to set up your project is one of them. And you mentioned like, yeah, you have the mocks and you have the test folder and like everything is predefined in a way. If you go like through the documentation, or you just look at a project and you see how it's structured. You can navigate basically through any code base that, that uses Jest, and like you understand immediately, like yeah. where tests are and what are those tests addressing. Because usually, like when you have super nested folder structures, at least in the projects that I work with, you'll probably find like several tests folders, and those tests like usually. Come together with the files that they are testing, so it's pretty much—it's very easy for you to scope in a specific part of the codebase and just like work around and iterate in whatever part there is, and just update the tests accordingly because they are like kind of structured in a way that that makes it easier, at least in my opinion.
1: I really like that, and then um, like a couple other things that I like about Jest. I don't know if you want to talk about these things. I mean, before when I first started writing tests, like I'd use sign-on and stuff like that, which I really like, but I like how like just kind of get everything out of the box. So you don't have to like pull in other things for mocking. And then something that I just worked on recently this past week is like integrating it with ESLint. So there's um, like a ESLint JAS plugin that is really good. Like it makes sure that people don't commit um, like any skips, commented out tests, stuff like that, which I'm sure like Jasmine and... Mocha and stuff. I'm sure that there's um, tools like that out there, but the one for ESLint Jest uh, just was pretty easy that I set up.
3: Yeah, that's like one that I use myself. And I think as you mentioned, that they do have those tools, like probably Jasmine and and mock and etc. But they are just not as well advocated that like the ESLint Jest plugin is, because it's pretty much standard and recommended whenever. You set up chest, You have this plugin that will help you not make these huge mistakes, like uh, leaving a, a skip or like ignoring tests. That, it's uh, a huge help. So, do you keep up on what's coming next in Jest? Not really, to to be honest. As much as I would like to, I think this past few months or I would say year, I I've been sticking to like whatever. Baseline functionalities of Jest are offering to me. I'm not really looking to the like what's coming next, and I mean it also didn't appear to me like in a way that hey, Jest is announcing some some huge change or some next huge feature. But I would love to hear from it if that's the case. But really, I don't know at the moment. So, do you have any tricks
0: that make Jest or make your tests easier to put together? So, in terms of
3: Tricks. I'll give out a few. I think lately, especially when I was working with, I was working a lot with uh, Rx and uh, observables, and testing them may get like a bit like tricky, even though you you're using Jest, but it's just something that you it's not easy to get around. Like for instance, like if you have. Like, I was using a UI framework that is proprietary in Trivago, and it's purely based on, on Rx, and like every DOM element is a stream, and it kind of like svelte reactivity, but like just purely based on Rx. You have these old files, like, you have the, we had like several files with like utility streams that are shared, and then in order to make them uh, do something, you actually need to subscribe to them, so there's a bit of boilerplate involved. Also, one thing that I, that I actually note down is that you can make observables, uh, you can convert them into promises. So I think a, a very good tip that I can give is like, if you're testing an observable and like you, you need to assert some output, like just use to promise. You probably find it within Rx documentation. Like you use to promise and like you assert whatever outcoming you have from that. And then you can use like a sync await to just manage this asynchronous flow uh, like gracefully, I would say. If you're using promises, for me, it feels or it felt a bit more natural than observables, like especially with a sync await in Jest. One thing though is actually I'm not really sure of this one, but it is considered good practice to return promises in your test. So like just don't hang whenever you resolve a promise, just as this uh native dot resolves uh kind of primitive that lets you get the data out of the promise uh in order to assert on it. So just make sure you return the promise. Uh otherwise for some reason your test might get uh hanging. Mm-hmm. And this was already the case with me when I was like testing stuff with karma. Karma and Mocha, like just make sure you return your promises, so that you don't don't give anything hanging within your, your test cases. So in this this article that I wrote the the, the unrevealed tips for testing with um, unit testing with with Jest, I got into one very weird trick. I would say weird because I I came along with a with a weird problem that I maybe I. I Put, I placed myself into, which was like I was trying to test a file that was non-existent in the file system. This basically was a library uh, where you, as a client, need to define like um, a configuration file. For some reason, we were not we are not providing the, that configuration file in the in the test itself. Like it was not like a file that was in your test directory. It was something that was like generated at runtime. And what I found out in Jest, like, after a few hours, I would say, of researching is that you have like this flag, which is Mm -hmm. uh, called virtual. And it's like a parameter that you can use in jest.mock to say that basically this file does not exist yet. So it's something like that. It's it's kind of pretty weird, but I, I thought it was like. Really, really interesting, uh, and especially to put it out there and just to to spread the word. Like, yeah, you can do this with Jest. And then, yeah, another one that is kind of tricky as well is that whenever you're testing any dependency, and if you don't know where on the other side, like people are doing like named exports or like export default, is that you can you you can define like whenever you perform a Jest dot mock, you can say that you can define the default uh, of the the export module by using a flag which is like underscore underscore es module if you define this within your jest mock when you create the jest mock you can you can define the default export property from this third party module or even a module that you have yourself but for some reason just uses export default which i'm not a big fan of
0: Import is this
3: mocking or stubbing out that module, or yeah, is it exactly like stubbing out okay. that module? You need to use this underscore underscore es module flag, uh, okay. in order then to write on top of that default that is exported on the other okay. side, and you can stub stuff. In my article, I gave this example of a library called cookies.js, js. I was trying to assert on this setter and getter, and it, <laughs> it, it gets quite annoying because I like it just wanted to like to a normal desktop mock, but then it it finds out you find out that okay it's an export default in that specific case, it was like importing from a transpiled like output, which was like a kind of a factory function with a single entry point, kind of weird, and yeah this this might save your day if you're stuck in like this kind of situation. one and, question that I have because a lot of the examples in
0: that article are about mocking and stubbing it seems like you use mocks and stubs fairly heavily and to a certain degree i i understand because you know you don't want to call the whole chain you know all the way up to wherever it goes up to and including over the network to something else but i've had mocks and stubs get out of hand where it starts to get hard to keep track of what is i guess there by default and what's being mocked out. So how do you keep all of that straight?
3: Yeah. So that's a problem that I I've been debating myself, especially when you have this like not big modules, but that have like a huge the a huge a bunch of dependencies that you just open this JS file and you see the first 50 lines that are imports or something like that. And yeah. then you have a you have a test file and you need to either mock all of them or mock some of them, but somehow it ends up like being hell. One thing to do here is that I found useful myself is like have yourself a bit of uh, like organization. When I say organization is enforce or, or at least try to, to put in place rules like sorting the imports like alphabetically and then trying to follow the same rule whenever you are defining the mocks this might seem like very simple but it's like it saved me like a lot of time when i was debugging something and trying to understand what's mocked and what's not mocked so just having these little tricks and 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 organize yourself can save you like a a bunch of time can save you a lot of time to you and your team then to actually debugging and um like understanding like is this module being stubbed it's not like what's going on for those cases what i would advise is like whenever like you have a huge file a huge test file and you have no idea what's the scenario there in terms of what's being stubbed or not run one of the test cases Uh, if you're using vs code uh, configure the uh, debugger with the with the Jest, jest extension which is Pretty cool. Set up a breakpoint in whatever line you can. Look at the modules um, that appear on your scope. So you look at the file, and you see, and like looking at each one of the modules, you can see okay, this guy has like mock functions uh, inside, and then you can go as deep uh, as deep as you want, and and you will understand and. And it's just not an assumption. You will really know for sure that, okay, this guy is a stub because someone is actually like stubbing this reference and this one for sure, I'm I'm secure that there is being stubbed. Or you see that, for instance, oh, after all, my stub is not working. I'm ending up calling the real implementation. And Mm -hmm. why is that? And then you go up in your file and you realize, oh, okay, uh, this mock or this... This stuff that I set up is like it's not set up properly and you just realize the stuff when you when you use the debugger and you just analyze the scope of of the test file. I found this like pretty useful in my opinion.
0: Yeah. One other thing that I'm I'm running into or thinking about is just when you run your tests. So some people they do like test driven development. So they write a breaking test, then they run the test, make sure it fails and then they you know, write code to make it pass, and then you know, they run it afterward and see that it passed. And for other people, it's I write, my te- I write my code, and then I write my test, and then I just run it afterward. Some people just run the tests on the things that they've changed. Other people's, people run all the tests before they commit, and then you've got CI and CD. So, so where are you running tests and, and what kind of environments? This
3: is a fairly large topic. I'll try to like give a bit of, a little bit of input around the like my experience both like locally and then trying to understand the surroundings of whatever changes you performed on the codebase and also uh, later on in the like in the continuous integration process that your project might have set up first going on onto tdv th- i've been doing it sometimes I'm not quite sure if I'm doing it properly, but it helps in certain cases. And those cases are the ones where like, I'm coding something and I clearly know what's the expectation. And this is mostly around handling data and writing stuff like peer functions. So for TDD, like you, have a, like you have a clear goal in mind. You describe your tests, you describe your how your output l- looks like, and it's pretty, pretty straightforward to see your test fail. And then you just write some code and you try to achieve parity uh, in a few iterations. And with Jest, it's pretty cool because you can pretty much target just one file with a common line or with the Jest VS Code extension. You can just run on a single file and just stay focused there. But if you're talking about writing tests, unit tests for like stuff like interaction, like rendering components, clicking and stuff around and seeing side effects, I don't think I ever did TDD in this kind of situation because what I mostly do as a front-end developer is like, I open the browser and I need to see things happening, otherwise I won't feel sure. So, I don't know if it's still like I have a very primitive mindset around development, but it's like it just doesn't feel as productive if I'm trying to do like, I don't know, mounting a component and then doing a shallow rendering and then clicking on a button and then going back to the component and writing some click handler and and, and then doing some logic. So it just doesn't feel as natural for me, at least in my opinion. So that's like my. Perspective around like TDD and how it can speed up your development, but also if you like, if you go like an extremist about TDD and just like say I'm going 100% and full steam on TDD, then yeah, I think you might get stuck in, especially when getting closer to the UI. Then in terms of like, do I run all the tests or do you target uh, specifically some parts of the codebase that you need to 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 check, well, it really depends and varies a lot with what kind of changes I'm introducing the codebase. If it's like super tiny and super focused, I will probably feel comfortable in running the tests against that module or, or that even that specific file. And that would be okay for me. But usually when I start doing stuff that is more like, Horizontal and kind of touches uh, here and there and goes goes around the code base, then just for like having like full like peace of mind and like be in peace and like push and and make things running in CI and uh, ha- having almost sure that everything is going to say green at the end, then in those cases I, I run just the full project or at least the full sub module it really depends on, on on the dimension of your code base as well because for sometimes it can take up to minutes. So you can also measure that and see whether you really want to just spend that time like watching the test cases go red or green while you can focus on something else. Or if you just like go ahead and, and just yeah. push and just let the CI uh, take take over. Then in terms of continuous integration like I'm not really an expert, but for me it's about running everything like fresh and clean with no exceptions and not like very sophisticated kind of mechanisms. Like for instance, I, I, I saw some projects that like could detect changes in some terminal modules and just run the test for those modules because they would be 100% safe and, and confident that, those changes wouldn't impact other modules that don't depend on those modules. But for me that's a bit more advanced. So just make sure in the CI just I'll, I'll just make sure, at least in my personal projects, to like run run everything and, and make sure that I get get yeah. everything green, at least in terms of like assertions. Cannot say the same for coverage, unfortunately, that that's a bit more tricky to get there. But yeah, at least getting everything green. It's a prime goal, I would say. Nice. I guess one more question that I have. I feel like
0: I've kind of monopolized uh, asking the questions and, and diving into this, but I find it very interesting. And I feel like testing is one of those areas that doesn't get talked about enough. So we've talked a whole bunch about Jest and about you know, how to do testing with Jest. The thing that I see most done with Jest is unit tests. One thing that I'm curious about is, do you run other kinds of tests in line with your Jess test testing. So, for example, do you pull in Cypress.io and do end to end or automated UIs? Do you pull in, or do you use Jess to do some kinds of like integration testing or, you know, full feature testing or component testing or things like that?
3: Yeah. Here I'm going to talk about my experience in the open source project that I mentioned, the React E3 graph. And then also on like a bit of my professional experience around this. Uh, overall test setup uh, landscape, let's say.
0: Sounds good. So
3: for for the the open source project, I set to myself kind of strict boundaries in terms of uh, what's going to be tested. I use Cypress, by the way, to do the end-to-end automation. So I kind of got a bit strict on what uh, I would do in unit testing and what I would do with uh, end-to-end testing. So and what I do with uh, Jest in this project is that I have no tests whatsoever for the components except for this just simple, let's call it smoke test, just to render the component and do an assertion on the snapshot. So the output that I get from the, the render, I just do a match snapshot, and that's as far as I'll go in terms of the UI. But then in terms of like all the modules that are all this uh, logic that builds like small configurations around client data that is passed, and then you have a bunch of configs that toggle in and out features. So all of this, like I try to cover it in terms of testing it probably properly with, with jest. So this is more on the let's say, business logic, and going into each file and trying to like look at the entry points and, and testing those APIs properly and like making sure that I'm getting like the most deterministic behavior that I can get. But then in terms of functionality, I go all the way to the end-to-end tests. And I don't really see the benefit of... And Maybe I'm wrong here, but if you do UI component testing... And you do like this, uh, you sh- do the shallow rendering of a component, and then you do some uh, click actions here and there, and then you perform some assertions on what happens in terms of side effects in that UI component. And then you go in the end-to-end tests, and you perform the same like kind of steps. You go and you click on the same stuff, and you assert for for the same side effects. I think it's just not very, it's not very productive, and you. Kind of, there's some redundancy here, right? Because you're kind of repeating yourself at some level, and I'm not really sure, like, if it's really worth it too. But for sure, it brings you more security and it brings you more safety and more stability. You cannot take that away. Then talking more about end-to-end tests, it's so. In, when I was writing like this article and, and the next one, I was reading a bit around the how a product or like how an application should go about testing. And there's this, like, the pyramid, I think it's called pyramid of testing, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. like something around uh, of, like, where do you need to put more effort and how fast series uh, versus how fast series. So, and what you get is, like, okay, you should have, a lot, like, a bunch of unit tests because they are, they are fast to write and, and you should have as much coverage as possible. And then as you go up in the pyramid and you get, more, like, more narrow, you should have like just a few end-to-end tests and like covering, of course, as much as possible end-user like, uh, behavior scenarios. But bear in mind that these tests are usually uh, way more expensive to write and they are way more expensive in terms of like, time. They are very time-consuming because running Cypress or running something Selenium-based is, is not going to be as fast as running a component test On Jest, that you just like you you use GS Dom and everything is JavaScript and it's running on Node and and you don't have any browser drivers in the process or any any kind of like that that is expensive stuff just stays out of the picture. So in that sense, I I think it makes sense that you just try to be as much pragmatic as you can in terms of what end to end tests you want to write and uh, avoid. Repetition and just avoid writing like useless kind of tests that like a challenge end to end tests in ways that like you 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 ask yourself like is this scenario really a thing that I like should be testing like uh, behavior wise because if you're talking about companies like where I work like Trivago which is like B2C and yeah, you do basically releases every day Maybe more than one a day. And you want to deliver stuff fast because, like, a release can take up to several hours from the QA process until rolling out all the servers until then scaling worldwide to all the data centers and all this, like, bunch of processes that are involved. So you want to make sure that you stay as, as much time efficient as possible in terms of automation. That's a thing that I, I think companies look into. But sometimes these barriers that I was talking about, like in my, that I have in my, in my personal, like the, the open source project, I think sometimes it met or probably they are not communicated properly. And then like you overstep in, into some areas that you don't want to. Maybe it's not the goal of, of the QA team or whatever is the architect that's behind the decision of like setting, a, setting up such a, such a test environment or test ecosystem around your product. So, yeah, I think in that sense, you should find your balance and, yeah, not, not going all the way to just having end-to-end tests or just having unit tests, but, yeah, try to find a balance and measure, measure things like effort and, uh, and, and time, yeah, yeah, time in terms of, like, how time consuming it is to run this test in a, in a like uh, continuous integration environment, and like just roll out this thing. Yeah, we had a conversation
0: on React Native Radio, which I recorded right before this, and uh, we were talking about you know essentially where does the QA role end and the developer role begin, and a lot of that is defined by the company. And yeah, so then it's okay. What's the ROI? What's my role? What's their role? You know, how are we defining that? And then in the places where we see that they cross over, are we making sure that we're not duplicating effort? It's definitely a consideration that you need to make as far as what the ROI is. So if I put in a ton of time and it's not going to keep me from putting bugs in my code, then it's probably not worth it. If it's a negligible amount of time, it's not going to slow my test down, and it's going to you know, catch stupid errors that I'm prone to make, then it's probably worth it, right? And then if you get into the nuance in between, then it's like, okay, is this worth the trade-off or not?
3: Yeah, Yeah, I think it just gets um, a bit harder if you have like super large organizations. And and these days, they are not only large, but they are as well distributed. So like in my case right now, people in the US throwing out commits into the, the repos and then... During the next day, while they are asleep, we go and we throw a few more commits there. And uh, yeah, it's super difficult to keep these things aligned. And there needs to be a lot of effort like and a lot of communication around these these things in order to make sure that we don't overstep each other. Yep.
0: All right. Well, we're getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else that people should know about Jest
3: or about you? So about chests, I would say that Especially if you are starting with JavaScript and, and front-end, just don't think too much uh, about the library you're going to use because at the end, you're probably going to end up using Jest. It's more important at a beginner stage to have unit tests and to decide like what is the proper testing framework that I should be, be using. There are a bunch of other choices that you'll struggle struggle way more than like to choose your, your testing library. And about me, if you want to check out my open source work, I just go on GitHub, search for Daniel Caldas or search for React D3 Graph. It's a pretty cool project that I've been putting a lot of effort into and I just like to get it out there and people commenting and people like requesting new features or even bringing on board more contributors. And uh, yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter and no. all uh, social media. I'm also also there. Yeah, cool.
0: Hey, folks. This is Charles Maxwood, and over the last few years, I've gotten to know a lot of great people within the Microsoft community, and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Claybo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET focused or Microsoft focused podcasts for a while. And thought, well, where's the devchat.tv style podcast for me in.net? You can find it. It's at adventuresin.net.net is spelled out, D O T N E T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks?
2: No. But uh, let me think about it for a second. Maybe I will anyway.
0: I've got some picks ready, unless Amy does.
2: I
1: do. Go ahead, Amy. I kind of picked this like short article that I found on Hacker News, uh, just because it has uh, good images. I think to <laughs> understand stuff. So the difference between fault tolerance, high availability, and disaster recovery. And <laughs> like for fault tolerance, he has a plane with like four propellers, and then high availability, it's a jeep with like the spare wheel, it's like a huge wheel, and then disaster recovery, he's got a guy ejecting from a plane so this was pretty good uh that's gonna be my pick for today
0: (laughs) nice AJ you ready or should I share mine
2: yeah yeah I'll I'll go okay so I think I'll pick two things one the the Rubin report now I am not uh I'm I'm more I, I don't know what I am politically but what I do know is that this is a person that there's a lot of Uh, opinions and beliefs that he has that I disagree with but he's so civil and so seemingly unbiased in his approach as he interviews people and as he discusses topics that I can't help but like him like I don't know. It's, it's, it's one of those, those beautiful things where you can, you can disagree with someone and like, and of course I'm not in the room with him. I have met him in person or anything, but I've been watching some of his stuff and, you know, and he's, he interviews very controversial people, uh, like for example, Donald Trump Jr. and, and whatnot, but he's just so uh, civil. He's just, he's just, he treats people with respect. And I, uh, I applaud that. And I think that's awesome. And one of the people that he interviewed was on a topic that I feel is super important. Her name is Lindsay Shepard. And this, the the stuff that went down happened a couple years ago, but basically she's somebody on the far, like progressive far left, somebody that I really just don't have a lot in common with, but she started getting uh, harassed by radicals at her university and just weird stuff happened, and I mean, fortunately, things sided in the favor of of the law, and uh, what I believe is is correct, which is to allow people their freedoms of expression within bounds of not being harassing or or violent. And I'll I'll just link to that interview if I can find it real quick, because I I think that there's something's happening that I wasn't aware of before something in the political landscape is happening that is strange and it's, and it's taking hold. And and this idea of silencing people or using violence to, um, to enforce ideas rather than debate is something that, uh, I think is concerning. And that's what the kind of this, this interview revolved around.
0: Thanks, AJ. I'm going to pick a few things. Uh, I've been picking Christmas movies. I'm going to do it for the next probably another week or two, just because it's kind of part of what I really enjoy in the the holiday season. And so, yeah, I'm going to pick a few. Now, uh, I am curious if anybody here knows off the top of their head, what movie the song White Christmas is originally from. No clue. It's not from the movie White Christmas, which is actually one of my picks. So White Christmas, it's a movie with uh, Bing Crosby. It has the song in it, but it's not the movie that it's originally from. It has Bing Crosby and Danny Kay. It's an awesome movie. I, I just really, really enjoy it. Like I said, it was made in the 50s. Very Christmas-focused uh, movie. It has singing and dancing and performing. And anyway, I just, I really, really love it. So uh, definitely check that out. The movie that it's originally from, the song White Christmas, is from Holiday Inn. Also has Bing Crosby in it. Incidentally, it was made in uh, 1942, and so it's about 12 years older than White Christmas. Anyway, it's it's a terrific movie too. It's about these these guys that come back from the war and they basically open up kind of a bed and breakfast uh, inn. You know, they have different holidays celebrated through it. Anyway, I, I really really love that movie too. So uh, between the two, Holiday Inn and White Christmas two just terrific movies. And yes, they are rather old movies. I only have one other movie that I'm intending to pick that is newer than 1980. And I'll probably pick it here in a week or two. And it's it's the one that I absolutely, positively have to watch every year. So uh, I'll give you that as a hint. And then finally, like I said, my book is out, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's on Amazon. I'll put a link here in the show notes. And you can definitely just go check that out. I think I've set the price to like $299. If you get it the day after or tomorrow as we record this, I think I had it at 99 cents. But yeah, just putting it out there and, and, and hopefully it helps a few people find jobs. I am working on a course that's going to go with it. The audiobook should be up in a week or so. And the print book should be available in about a week as we record this. So I think this comes out in like a month. So all of that should be available to you by, by this point. So just go into uh, Amazon and just do a search for the Max Coders guide to finding your dream developer job. Or I've been finding it because I keep looking it up. Uh, just look it up on Max Coders. And if you type in Max Coders, then you should be able to find it. And yeah, those are my
3: picks. Daniel, do you have some picks for us? Well, talking about Christmas, I don't know if that's a thing in the US or not, but in Portugal, it's kind of mandatory that you watch Home Alone. Every Home Christmas. Alone. Yeah, it's... It's it's a classic. It it goes on here, like at least on two or three TV channels. They are public, like like free to consume. I think it's kind of a meme at this point in time, but we still watch it. And that's that's for
0: sure. Now, do you watch Home Alone or Home Alone
3: Two or? Well, you cannot get the chance to watch them all. They go in sequence. So, right. but I, I like the classics. I stick to the Home Alone. No more than two, maybe if I have time, but yeah, definitely the first one.
0: Yeah. So every year I buy my wife a Christmas movie. Yeah, what's funny is is I got her the Home Alone movie set. And when I bought it, I was like, There's a Home Alone three. <laughs>
3: <laughs> there is. There is
0: And there is. It looks like it's not with any of the same actors as Home Alone one and Two. But yeah. No. But you can stream it all over the place. Home Alone one and two came out in ninety, I think nineteen ninety 1990 and nineteen ninety two, and Home Alone three was
3: like nineteen ninety seven. So it's yeah. Anyway, it's not a classic as as ones you mentioned, but yeah, I'm not sure. quite as old. Not quite as old, but it's getting there. Different it's flavor, there. but
0: yeah, it's Christmas. So yeah. All right, good deal. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you for coming, Daniel. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up. We'll be back next week. And until then, Max out. Bye. Adios. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.